Well, if you would, please turn with me your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. You can find it on page 917 in the Pew Bibles. Today we're going to be looking at a familiar passage from many. This is the conversion of Saul, who would be later renamed as the Apostle Paul. But this is also one of these passages that causes us a lot of confusion. We don't really know how to look at it, what to make of it, and know how it applies to our lives. And it's centered around this issue of conversion, right? I mean, what does it mean to be converted to Christ? What does that look like? I mean, is, that, is, is conversion simply a, a shift of religious or, or some sort of belief system, right? That we just kind of, I, I used to believe this, and now I believe this, and therefore I was converted to whatever that is. Is it some sort of self-actualization, you know, that, that really the gospel is about self-improvement, about betterment, you know, we're basically good, but, you know, we're sort of lacking something, we got sort of this God-shaped hole in all of us that needs to be filled with Jesus to make us more complete, or is it something even more than that, is it, is it, uh, is it simply a matter of human volition, this, this willing response to the gospel call whereby we sincerely and truly repent of our sin and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation? Is it purely that, that human exchange, that, that human level involvement? Is conversion an evident experience? I mean, that's, that was the case with, with Saul that we're going to see. I mean, does it have to be dramatic like that? Like, you just got to know that suddenly the, the switch was flipped and then here you are. And, but what if you can't say that? What if you can't say, you know, I don't know exactly when that point was where, where this conversion took place. Does that mean that I'm not saved? Should I know it? Should I feel it? Should it just be evident in my life? Or is there something even more than that? What is God doing in our and what is the fruit of a true conversion to Christ? Now, those were some of Annika's questions. Many of you remember Annika Herman, now Bart Freda. She's a member here for quite a while until she and her husband Ben got married and moved to Chicago to live a happy life in the city away from us. You know? um, but uh, my first introduction to Annika was actually through an email. She had been coming to Redeemer for a couple of weeks, and, and she emailed me because she just, she didn't really know where she stood, and she had some questions. She wanted to talk about where she was spiritually. She said that though she had been raised in a Christian home, she had never gone through, and these are her words, a true process of repentance or conversion. Now, she could feel God working in her heart, filling her with this desire to to follow him, but she wanted to know how to proceed. And so we got together, we talked, and, and her big hang-up was that she could not identify a moment of conversion. Now perhaps that describes many of you this morning. And so for her, it was more of a gradual change of trajectory, a slow melting of her heart that led to new desires to repent of her sin and to follow Jesus. Now, remembering that conversation, I told her, listen, Monica, we, we don't all have conversion experiences like Saul. I mean, raise your hand if this describes you, right? You're, you're kind of going, you're, you're a terrorist, you're a persecutor of the church, on your way to, to do that very thing. When Jesus knocks you on your tail, strikes you blind with an, an audible voice from the Lord saying, this is what's going to happen to you, and it so radically converts you that you actually become a miracle-working, scripture-pending apostle of Jesus Christ who would die in the service of Christ in the establishment of his church throughout the mission field. Does that describe anybody here this morning? I didn't think so. And so this passage we're going to look at is a very unique Conversion. And yet, when you look beyond the visions, the blinding and the regaining of sight, the audible voice of the Lord, 
You know, the process of conversion that we see in Saul's life is identical to the process of conversion that we see in every true follower of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so if you're here and you're kind of wondering to yourself, you know, I want to know whether or not I'll be truly converted. I just don't quite know. Well, this passage will help you to discern that this morning. And though it may look a little different from person to person, at its core, the process of conversion looks like this. We start out in a state of spiritual blindness. And then God regenerates our hearts. And because of this work that God does in our lives, we respond to him by living for his name. That's what we're going to see in this text this morning. The core process of conversion for every person that God redeems is that those who were once spiritually blind, God regenerates to live for his name. Let me say that again. Those who were once spiritually blind, God regenerates to live for his name. And so with that, let's seek to live for his name as we read and receive this word from Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 19. It says, But Saul, still bringing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might commit them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuted? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food and strengthened. I want you to hear me. Regardless of your past, Regardless of your background, regardless of what culture you happen to come from, regardless of your manner of sin, regardless of your personal spiritual experiences, all who have come to faith in Christ share in this same process of conversion. We go from spiritual blindness to spirit-empowered, grace-empowered regeneration to responding in continual faith by living for his name. And so what we're going to do this morning is just break that statement down. So first, what on earth do I mean when I say spiritual blindness? And let me just tell you right up front that modern descriptions of conversion as a choice, as, as self-actualization, or simply as a personal response of repentance and faith are woefully inadequate to describe what we see happening here. 
Spiritual blindness, simply put, is the inability to see the truth and beauty of Jesus. Unable to see and acknowledge his power, his rule, his truth, his glory, the fact that he is altogether lovely. Those who are spiritually blind reject Jesus as king. They reject him as Lord. They might reject him as creator and sustainer of all there is. They reject the idea that he created the universe and therefore he is the owner and sovereign over all. But also they reject the idea that according to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That he is actively involved right now in sustaining all there is, even your life. And if he were to remove that, not sustaining it by the word of his power, you would cease to exist. Those who are spiritually blind reject or they are indifferent towards the idea that they need to be saved. Now, I'm basically good. Y'all pretty much got it all together. I just do this whole Christianity thing because, you know, it just makes me a better person. They fail to see how they have rejected and rebelled against God and tried to live their lives without Him as if this is my world and I am God, that I can just kind of go through life and be Lord of my own life and determine my own way and do whatever I want. To be spiritually blind is to reject the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. But to be spiritually blind is also to fail to see the glory and beauty To love him, to find him as worthy of my life. They might see what the word says, they might affirm the notion of truth that they read about on the pages of scripture, but if they're honest with themselves, they have no delight in it, no desire for it. It's not something that they long for. To them, Jesus is really more of a fragrance of death leading to death than a fragrance of life leading to life. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They simply don't see Jesus as glorious, as beautiful, as altogether loving. Though they hear the message, they have no desire for it. They are blind. Now in the case of Saul, we see initially both a rejection of truth and the beauty of Jesus. Now you might look through and kind of think about other people and think, you know what, it, it's somewhat easy for us to see how someone who maybe is an addict or someone who is extremely immoral or someone who is a hardened atheist to be spiritually blind, right? You, you, you can see that these people are licentious. They have no desire for God whatsoever and they just kind of give themselves over to their passions and their philosophical ideas. It's easy to see them as God-haters, but you know, Saul was an evil unbeliever too, but from a very, very different category. Saul was a legalist. Saul was a religious terrorist. Verse 1 says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so since, ever since the approval, him standing there in approval of Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter 7, he has been frothing at the mouth. He's been panting. He has been hungry and eager to continue the persecution of Christians. He's adamant to pursue these people who belong to this way. He was a part of that persecution in Acts chapter 8 that drove thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians from their homes, from their family, from their friends, from their way of life, from everything that they had come to know about themselves but Jesus, and they had to flee for their lives. And the, the effect was basically the only Christians that were left in Jerusalem were the apostles and those who were in prison. But that was not enough for Saul. He wasn't done. 
Now hearing that they, these Christians may have even made their way to the synagogues of Damascus, right? So this is beyond the region of Judea. This is beyond the region of Samaria. This is now the reaching the uttermost. This is Syria. And they're there in the synagogues of Damascus. He goes to the chief priest, or the high priest, and he asks to receive these letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to this way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. They're there and they're continuing to preach this word of Christ and this is like a cancer to him. This is vermin. This way had to be eradicated. And so as we think about this, it ought to put in our minds groups like ISIS or communist regimes, Hindu mobs, African warlords like Joseph Kony, or immoral, liberal ideologies that would seek to persecute, to kill, to imprison, to abduct disciples of Christ in order to put an end to the way. Right? He is adamant in his religion in opposition and hatred. You look down in verses 13 and 14, we see Ananias, this faithful Christian from Damascus, he's received word about Saul and about how much evil he had done to the saints in Jerusalem and the authority that he has been given by these chief priests to imprison all who call upon Christ's name. And Ananias is afraid because Saul is evil enough and Saul has enough authority to do it. Now, before you go disregarding Saul as some religious extremist, yes, Saul was a terrorist. But you need to keep in mind that the reason why he's seeking permission to capture any who followed this way is because Saul's motivation was to follow God. He, according to his own statement in Philippians chapter 3, was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of God, a Pharisee. Right? He's a teacher of the law, he's a conservative, he's upright, he's holding to the word of God as a zeal, he's a persecutor of the church, he's going to every length, every extreme, in order to obey the law, as to righteousness under the law. Do you know what he says of himself? He was blameless. Saul was not licentious. He was a legalist. Saul was a religious terrorist, believing that he was following God, zealous beyond all of his peers. Saul went to great measures to protect what he understood to be the truth. And he had heard the message of the gospel from Stephen and perhaps from these other Christians whom he had imprisoned. And by his own strength, he had attempted to discern and to weigh that against what he understood to be the truth, what he understood to be God. But he was still blind to the truth and the beauty of Jesus, all the while religiously holding to his understanding of God and truth. And as a legalist, Saul appeared to love God. But in reality, he hated him. See, you can't love God and hate and persecute his church. You can't say that you love Jesus and hate his church because what you do to the church, you do to Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was attacking the church, the body of Christ. But Jesus responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, though Saul was religious, though he professed to believe and even to love God, Saul had left the commands of God to follow the traditions of man. Jesus knocked him to the ground and struck him blind on the road to Damascus to help him to see his true blindness. Friends, his blindness was revealed in his question. Who are you, Lord? He didn't know. He didn't know who Jesus was. 
know who this person was. Even, get this, even in this display of glory, even in this display of truth, even in this display of power that knocked him flat on his tail, struck blind, he did not know Jesus. And that question, who are you, Lord, is the fundamental issue for every single one of us. Who is this Jesus? Regardless of, of who you are, or where you come from, or what your past experiences have been, regardless of whether you would have classified yourself as licentious or a legalist, every one of us in this room started out with something like scales on our eyes. We either were, or perhaps you are here, and you still currently are spiritually blind to the truth and beauty of Jesus. I can't assume that just because you're here that you have automatically been given eyes to see the glory of Christ. Because some of you may be here and you're still living for all that this world has to offer. That's really what motivates you. That's what gets you up in the morning. That's what you're all about. This Jesus, you know, he's kind of a thing on the side. But this is what I'm pursuing. This is what I'm about. Some of you may be here and you're struggling just intellectually or maybe just emotionally with the truth of the gospel in some way. In some really heavy way. Some of you may be here, and, and perhaps you have stories much like Annika's, that you grew up going to church, you were basically a good kid, you were a good student, you've been going through life operating out of that tradition, you may have claimed to be a Christian because it was more a part of your cultural or your family background, but you don't truly know, you don't truly love, you don't truly long to follow Jesus, you don't know him. You don't love him. You aren't for him. You don't comprehend his glory, his beauty, his truth, his power, his authority. You don't long to follow him. Regardless of whether you follow license or legalism, you, just like Saul or everyone else in this room, at one point in time, was spiritually blind. Blind to your sin, Blind to God's work in the world around you. Blind to who God is. Blind to what he has done in Jesus. Blind to just how much you need him. Conversion requires a recognition of that spiritual blindness. It requires that we sing with all of our being that famous line from that very well-known hymn, "'Twas blind, now I So, true conversion requires sight from spiritual blindness. Something like scales must be removed from our eyes. But that is only the first step. Those who were once spiritually blind, God must regenerate. And so the second step in this process of, uh, of conversion is called regeneration. Now, regeneration, again, it's another big biblical word, but it's in the Bible, so we want to talk about it, right? Basically, regeneration is God's work to cause us to be born again. In our children's catechism, we, that we use here at Redeemer, it defines regeneration as a change of heart that leads to true repentance and faith. And the follow-up question to that tells us that only the Holy Spirit can change a sinner's heart. We have no ability in and of ourselves to change our hearts. And if left to ourselves, we would continue in spiritual blindness indefinitely. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, this really confused the guy he was talking to, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, well, how can you enter into your mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Just like your natural birth wasn't the result of your own work, neither is your being born again. 
This is the work of God. Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, tells us that we should praise God, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who did it? God did it. He's the one who caused us to be born again, so we should praise him for it. And he says a little bit later in verse 23 of the same chapter that the means that God uses in the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us or to cause us to be born again is through his living and abiding word. That the word comes to abide in our hearts and it gives us life. We are born again. The Apostle Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, a passage that, that Keith preached on just a couple of weeks ago. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, uh, of God our Savior, appears, giving us sight, right? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so, to put it simply, we were born blind. We were born dead in our sin. And being born dead in our sin being born blind will only lead us to death and eternal condemnation. The only hope we have for any of us is to see is that God, in His grace, would open our eyes. Friends, often God does that over a period of time. I mean, if you think about Saul, God was at work before, during, and after his rebirth. Even while Saul was breathing threats and murder against Christians, God was at work placing Saul in the position where he would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Saul stood there approving of the death of Stephen, he heard the gospel. As Saul was pursuing these Christians, binding them, committing them to prison, he was hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in his zeal, though misguided, was a gift from God. Saul had received education as a Pharisee from the very, at the very feet of Gamaliel, the renowned and revered and respected Jewish rabbi, who in Acts chapter 5 was the very one who convinced the council to release Peter and John. Don't think that had some kind of impact on Peter, or on, on, on Saul. And yet here he's learning from him. And that education, when redirected, actually used what was a fuel that fired and, and inflamed his faith in Jesus Christ. The vision that he had received in the blindness in verses 3 through 9, that's not Saul's decision. You don't pick that. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. It was Christ's choice to appear to him, to reveal himself to Saul, and not Saul's companions. Right? What do you think about that? Saul falls to the ground in a sudden flash of light that struck him blind as he heard the voice of Christ rebuking him for persecuting Jesus through the body of the church. It was Jesus who told him in verse 6, look, you're going to rise, you're going to enter the city, and I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. But the men who were with him merely stood speechless, hearing no voice but seeing no one. What a description of those who hear the gospel and yet do not believe. They hear but do not see. It was God who gave Saul a vision of Ananias coming and laying his hands on him to restore his sight as Saul and his blindness prayed and fasted in repentance and in preparing his heart for three days. In addition, it was God who was at work in a completely different situation, revealing himself to Ananias in verses 10 through 17 to use him as an ambassador to heal and to proclaim truth and to lay his hands on Saul for a very, very, very specific, direct order, right, that he might receive the Holy Spirit. 
It was God who told Ananias in verse 15 that Saul was God's chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and that God would show him how much he must suffer for the sake of God's name. Saul didn't choose that, by the way. It's not like he was looking for a new career path here. You know what? I, I, I'm not really into this whole Pharisee thing anymore. I think I'm going to go back to school and become a Christian. We go from a persecutor to being persecuted. No one signs up for that. It was God who granted Saul the Holy Spirit. It was God who caused something like scales to fall from his eyes. It was God who was at work in Saul's conversion. Friends, do not be so caught up in the miraculous details of this event that you miss the point. Because at each and every instance, before, during, and after Saul's new birth, we see that it was God who was at work to regenerate Saul's heart. And God alone receives and deserves the glory. Those details should not be understood to be prescriptive of our conversion experiences or normative for God's people everywhere, but evidence to us of just how hard-hearted Saul was and all that God did in love and kindness and mercy to restore him to himself. Guys, this is not something to sort of long for. It's like, man, I just wish I had an experience like Saul's. I just wish that God would just kind of show up and smack me around a little bit, you know, kind of make it evident that he's doing this work and calling me out. No, you need to be thankful that he didn't require that, that you were so hard-hearted in and of yourself that God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to smack you around and give you visions and audible voices and strike you blind in order to allow you to see. But God, let that be evidence of just how kind and just how good and just how committed God is to achieving his purposes that he would do that for his people. That's what it means. We miss it. According to Acts 26, Saul recognizes that he had been kicking against the goads of God for quite some time. We don't know all of the details that that meant, but he knew that this was a process. But God's persistent, life-transforming grace is irresistible. It was God who gave him eyes to see. It was not Saul's religion. It was not Saul's choice. It was not Saul's moral goodness. It was not Saul's desire for self-improvement that saved him. It wasn't because he prayed a sinner's prayer, because he accepted Jesus into his heart. It wasn't because he came up forward and he performed all of the religious duties and, and submitted to the ordinance of baptism. It wasn't because Ananias came and laid his hands on him that he received the Holy Spirit. This was God's work. Conversion was the work of God from beginning to end. But you know, even here, some people wonder when exactly Saul was converted. Was it in verse 3, when he saw the vision and heard the voice of Jesus? I mean, after all, he does respond in obedience, in prayer and fasting. Or was it three days later? And Ananias showed up at his door, laid his hands on him and prayed for him, and he received the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, I think the latter has the most support. But even in Saul's dramatic conversion, we see God at work before, during, and after Saul's regeneration. And so whether Saul's conversion was a moment in time or a three-day process, it doesn't ultimately matter. Whether Saul, it, it was God's work that changed his heart. And you know, if you read Saul's account of his life, if you read Philippians 3 or Galatians 1, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, Acts 22, Acts 26, when Saul, who would later be renamed Paul, looks back on his life, he doesn't identify his salvation with a spiritual experience or with an ordinance, 
but in the transforming work of God in his heart. That's what matters. It was the regenerating work of God that saved him. Friends, just because you didn't receive a vision or you were not healed, just because you didn't hear an audible voice of Jesus or were given a direct commission as an apostle, just because God didn't give someone else a vision and he showed up at your hotel room in a strange city to lay hands on you so that you receive the Holy Spirit, God's providential work in your life and his active grace upon your heart is no less specific and no less significant. Hear that. Just because if you just thought, if you just thought about all of the people that God has placed in your life who have loved you and cared for you, who shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you. If you think about all of the opportunities you have had to hear the word of God, when you think about all of the times where God has cared for you, where he has provided for you, where he has sustained your life, even if, like, against some things where you're just like, you know what, uh, by all rights, I should not be here. I've had at least four or five of those in my life already, not that old. Right? Where you could kind of see God was clearly doing something, then you would realize that His grace towards you is absolutely amazing. And quite honestly, even if you're here and you would say, you know what, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, you could do that very same thing and still be awestruck by the awesome wonder of God that He has allowed you to sustain your life so that you can hear the truth and beauty of Jesus. You can respond to the gospel message. You can hear his word and receive it and be baptized and rock all of that. That can be yours. Because that is a gift from God. We who are in Christ have simply been given the eyes to see it more clearly. Your God's plan for the salvation of every single soul, of every one of his people through all of the trials and all of the blessings is every bit as wondrously specific, even if God never tells us what it is, even if it's never immortalized in a book of the Bible. Because guess what? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us, to our children forever, so that we may do all the words of this law. Friends, marvel at his grace toward you. And respond in praise and in thanksgiving for his work in your life. And just because your conversion, just because your life, just because your ministry does not look at souls, do not look with disdain upon the grace of God in your life. You realize that's what you're doing, right? Oh, you know, I'm comparing my life to so-and-so's over there, and it's not like that, you know? Boo-hoo for me, why can't I be like that? You know what you're saying? God, your grace isn't good enough. God, you don't know what you're doing in my life. It's not true. It is every bit as wonderful. Every bit as amazing. Every bit as marvelous. Even if it's not what you want to expect. It is worthy of No more important than us resting in some point in time, looking back to some event or some process in our lives for assurance of one's salvation. What God does is he bids us to look upon his call and to look upon his work in our lives. That is what matters. You see God's call and you see God at work. 
Was there a change of heart? Do you see a redirection in your life? Is there a change of trajectory? Do you find yourself having new desires? Do you find yourself turning away from the old self, your old sinful desires, and longing to follow Christ in faith? Are you growing in your love for Christ? Are you growing in your love for His Word? Are you growing in your love for His people? Do you treasure Jesus more today than you did before? Friends, that is God's work in your life. Do you know what that means for you? It means for God who let light shine, said let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Are you beholding the glory of Christ? That's what matters. And you know something? If that can happen to Saul, this religious terrorist, chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. And it can happen to anybody. That's how powerful God's grace really is. But you can't count anyone out. Not yourself. Not your family member that you just kind of wrote off. Not that neighbor who's just contentious and hard to get along with. Not that co-worker that's causing strife every time you go to work, not, not that kid who's kind of the black sheep in your family, not, no one, no one is beyond that, no one is beyond the grace of God. So live like that. Baptism does not save you. Having a dramatic spiritual experience doesn't save you. Performing good works does not save you. Only God can save you by working in your heart, by giving you the gift of His Spirit, by transforming you from death to life, from darkness to light, from enemy to error, by giving you new desires and new affections because you have received the Holy Spirit so that you now turn from your former way and follow Jesus because you have beheld and you continue to behold the glory of Christ. It's this is God's work for generation, causing you to be born again to a living hope, removing the scales from your eyes so that you might see, so that you might behold, so that you might seek and savor Jesus. Can you say that of yourself? Can you say, you know what? can't see evidence of God's work in my life. It's very slower than I would prefer because I'm hard-hearted. But I can see that God is unfaithful. I can display the transforming power of the gospel in your life as you behold Christ. Or, or are you just going through motions? There's if God has given you eyes to see your spiritual blindness, and if you can identify the work of regeneration in your heart, then the third step of conversion is to respond by living grace. And we see there in verses 8 and 9 that immediately Saul obeyed the voice of Christ. Saul no doubt spent those three days of blindness and repentance and seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting. We know that he repented of his rebellion against God because he spoke of his former life often. We have many recordings of it, and he also taught on the necessity of repentance. In fact, in one of his accounts in Acts 26, he said that he declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all of the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. But when the message of Ananias in verse 17 came, and Ananias laid his hands on him and prayed for him, and his sight was restored, he received the Holy Spirit. And it says there in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight and rose and was baptized. And so what we see happening here is Saul responds to this work of regeneration heart by repenting of his sin and believing in the name of Jesus. 
He had received the Holy Spirit, and then, as a sign of his being born again to this living faith, this change of heart, this change of allegiance and identity, this change of faith, he responded by being baptized. Baptism is a symbol of our identification with Christ. It is an outward profession of an inward faith. In baptism, we are submerged under the water and delivered up again to represent our being buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And there's no going back. Baptism symbolizes death to our old ways, our old desires, our old identity, and being changed to live a new life for Christ from that day forward. Baptism was commanded by Jesus that all of those who are his disciples are to make a public declaration that they are now his, being baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You should think about baptism like getting married. When you get married, you forsake all others, and you covenant yourself together in love with your true spouse, with your true husband, Jesus. Just as with the wife in her vows, in the signing of the marriage license, in going and getting all of the new identification, she changes her name and she takes on his. You see, faith in Christ results in a covenant union. Those who were once estranged, separated, divided, away from God, hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world, have now been made one in Jesus. And so they believe in his name. They bat they're baptized in his name with the purpose then of living for his name. Baptism is like that wedding ring. It's the symbol of that new identity that you have in Jesus. Being baptized in his name is like a name change. You are professing to the world now that you belong to him. Those who have been given eyes to see their blindness, those who God have done, has done this work of, of regeneration in their hearts, they have new affections, new desires, they now long to obey Christ in all things. They now long to identify themselves with him in baptism. They now long to make a public profession of their faith. So does that describe you today? You responded in obedience to the work of God in your life. You repented of your sin and your rebellion against God. Have you trusted and followed after the Lord Jesus? Have you been baptized as a public declaration that you are now His? Friends, if you haven't, let me just encourage you to talk to someone. Feel free to come up and talk to me or talk to Caleb or Kyle. Or if you're in a community group, somebody that you know, somebody who brought you, if you don't know anybody, just tap on the shoulder of the person next to you and say, who do I talk to? And they will help you. But our response is to be immediate. But it's not only that immediate response. It doesn't end when we're baptized. Not only are we to be baptized in the name of Christ, but we are called to his name. Friends, Saul, according to verse 15, was God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He was called to suffer much for the sake of Christ's name. And if, as we are going to continue to read through the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see him doing. The rest of his earthly life and all of his eternal life is one of living for the name of Jesus. But friends, that, that call to carry the name of Christ is not just for Saul. Right? I don't want you to see that. Like, well, Saul, Saul was an apostle. Saul wrote the Bible. So, you know, I'm not Saul. This is not for me. It doesn't really matter. Well, guess what? Ananias was equally a chosen instrument. Again, what was Ananias doing before Jesus showed up? What did Ananias do after Jesus showed up? Ananias was God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to Saul, this notorious persecutor of those belonging to the way so that Saul might receive sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit so that he might carry the name of Christ before Gentiles, kings, 
the children of Israel. Guys, think about this for a minute. We know almost nothing about Ananias. And had it not been for Saul recounting his conversion, we would never have known his name. Never. But look at how the Lord used him. We learn from Acts 22, verse 12, that he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. And so this Ananias was a faithful Jewish Christian who was a convert from, from Judaism to Christianity who lived in Damascus. But you've got to ask yourself, how did Ananias come to be there? How did the gospel come to him as he lived in Damascus? There are only two options, right? Either Ananias used to live in Jerusalem and the persecution that erupted there in Acts chapter 8, drove him from his land to Damascus, or one of those who were fleeing for their lives fled and went to Damascus and shared the gospel with him. So either directly or indirectly, he was deeply affected by the persecution of Saul. It's not like he just kind of heard of this guy's name and was like, well, you know, I, I kind of heard that this was a problem down there, but I don't, don't really know. He would have felt it. Either he himself, one of his family members or friends, fled from Saul, and yet Jesus says to Ananias, Ananias, could have said, you know, I don't, I don't want to go. I'm afraid to go. I got all this stuff going on in my life right now. I'm really busy. You know, I've got these kids to take care of and all this kind of stuff. I can't go. It's kind of not the sense of it. Jesus said, lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. You know, Ananias could respond and no. You know, you know what? This guy deserves to be punished for all the evil that he's done. I'm not going to do it. Jesus says to him, take the gospel to him so that he might receive the Holy Spirit. And Ananias could have said to him, Jesus, you know what this is? This guy deserves hell. You know what he did to your saints. He doesn't deserve your mercy. Jesus says, I'm going to make him my apostle to the Gentiles. And Ananias could question that. Surely, surely there's got to be someone else, not him, anyone but him. But implicitly behind all of this is the fact that God does this work for his own glory. The persecutor becomes the persecutor. The one breathing threats and murder will preach the message of life and hope. The one who tried to bind those belonging to the way will be the one who carries the name of Christ, this one way, to the very ends of the earth. Marvel at that. And all we know about Ananias was that he was faithful to take the gospel to him to bring this message of life and hope and reconciliation. That's it. And in verse 17, Ananias does the most profound thing. Ananias obeys Jesus. Gets up, follows all of those instructions, goes to the street, calls straight, knocks on the door of Judas. Say, Judas, I am there Walks up to him, lays his hands on him, this persecutor, and says, Brother Saul. He says, Brother Saul. You know, as much as we would like have a ministry like Paul's. All the excitement, 
all of the acknowledgments, all of the converts and church plants as the gospel is spread among the nations. You know what? It's, it's far more likely that God's call for us to carry the name of Jesus will look like the little Both are God's chosen instruments who are called to carry the name of Jesus to the nations. It's a suffering. Brother, son. That's the kind of forgiveness, the kind of unity, the kind of life, the kind of reconciliation that the gospel is meant to bring. Not in abstract, but in reality. And so, who do you need to take that to? Who is it that you find a hard time forgiving? Who is it that you're failing to love? Who is it that you recognize that there's great animosity and disunity in your life. The message to you is to say to them, brother son. But you know, even beyond those two names, this passage still shows us what it looks like to be a true convert that carries the name of Christ. In verse 1, these, these true converts are called disciples of the Lord. They are learners from Christ. They are followers of Christ. They follow Jesus' way, not their own way, as they live in submission to Jesus as their one and only Lord and Savior. And so implicit within this true conversion is a commitment to obey Christ in all things. Not, not perfection, but a deep desire that says, you know what, I'm going to turn away from what I want for the sake of what he calls me to. In verse 2, we see that even though they have been scattered by this persecution, Christians are, are running from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. They're showing up in synagogues. Now this is significant because what this tells us is that they still love Scripture. They see the continuity of the Word of God. It's not like, okay, I got Jesus now. I don't need all of that Old Testament stuff. That stuff doesn't matter. I don't need the church. I don't need God's people. You still see them devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, to instruction from the law, and to evangelism because they go to the synagogues to in love to help these people to see the way of Christ. Verse 2 says that they belong to the way. Scripture says that there are essentially two ways to live. There's one way that leads to eternal death, and there is the one way, this way that they belong to, that leads to salvation and eternal life. And that's it. And that one way of salvation that they belong to is a narrow way. And yet we are called to that. And this one way of salvation is not only the way to life, but it is the way of life. They belonged to it. They were devoted to it. They were committed to it. And you can identify them, even in the face of persecution, because you know what? Even though they're scattered, guess what? They're still gathering together and devoting themselves to the church. And friends, you cannot belong to this way and hate the church. Because the resurrected Lord Jesus so closely identifies himself with his body, the church, that according to verses 4 and 5, your actions and attitudes towards the church are your actions and attitudes towards Jesus. So you think about that as you think about your brothers and sisters. True converts who know, know who Jesus is, and they are ready to obey Jesus so that when he calls, just like Ananias in verse 10, we say, here I am, Lord. Friends, we are his servants. He is not ours. All of our plans, all of our agendas, all of our ideas and expectations and hopes and dreams for the future are subject to him. 
When he calls, we say, Amen. I think Ananias even had his plans for the week. You think his plans included going to the many persecutor of the church? I assure you, he did not. True converts are called saints in verse 13. Because they receive the Holy Spirit who is conforming them into the image of God's beloved Son, and they are actively pursuing holiness in the strength that the Spirit provides. In verse 14, converts are those who have called upon the name of Christ. They called upon His name because they realized there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. And in utter dependence upon His grace and mercy in their lives, they call upon Him, and they are willing to take His name upon themselves that they might be saved. In verse 15, they are all chosen instruments to serve the mission of Christ. In verse 17, they are to so love one another and are unified by their Heavenly Father that they consider each other brother and sister so that they'll even go and say, Brother Saul. True converts have been sent out as ambassadors. They've been given eyes to see. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit because they responded to Christ in repentance, faith, and baptism. And that's just the description that we see in these verses. This is what it means to be a convert to Christ, to believe in His name, to carry His name, to call upon His name, as we live for His name and not our own. Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20, could be clear that Jesus came and said to them, listen, behold, acknowledge this, recognize this, all authority, heaven and on earth, has been given to me. He's the one with authority. So what do we do with that? You go and you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that we can Behold, I'm with you always to Those whom God has given eyes to see, those whose hearts God has changed, those who have responded in repentance and faith and have symbolized that in the ordinance of baptism are called to make disciples, to carry the name of Christ, to bear his name in everything, not just with our words, but as we live to display the glory of his name. Friends, that's what it means to be true convert. Those who are once spiritually blind, God regenerates to live for His name. So, guys, as you go forth from here, I want you to think deeply about your original state. I want you to think deeply about the depravity, the inability, the spiritual blindness that was yours. I want you to marvel and wonder and hope and celebrate and give thanks for God's abundant grace in your life and His transforming you. And I want you to know that if you are in Christ, your life is not your own. You are bought with a price to glorify Christ in your body. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Like Saul, or like Ananias, or like the rest of these unnamed disciples of the Lord, you are to carry with you always the name of Christ, to bear his name in everything, not just with our words or in our baptism, because Paul himself would tell us later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those true converts who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is the effect of true conversion. Those who are once spiritually blind, God would generate.
By his grace, we bear it well, his glory, and for our joy. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes that marvel at your grace and kindness towards us. Both the common grace that sustains our lives and the special grace that you have worked in Christ in bringing us salvation. God, I pray that we would marvel at all that you have done and all that you are doing, even though we might not see exactly what that looks like, and how it all, it's all going to play out in our lives, I pray that we would delight and we would have hope because you are at work. Because we trust in you and we hope in you. Because we are now these new creations in Christ who have been created, who are your worksmanship, to carry out these good works that you've prepared in us beforehand to walk in, I pray that you would be our desire and our delight to live for your name. Lord, I pray that we would see the options that we have, these two ways before us. Either we live for your name or we die in ours. That's no trick. I thank you for the amazing grace that you have shown us in Christ that enables us to say,